Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, you'll need a Bible. The guys have some. And they're going to make their way to the back as they do. If you need a Bible, just get their attention. And they'll give you one of those. Marked for you at Matthew 6. It's our gift to you. Keep that Bible and bring it with you each Lord's Day. Matthew chapter 6. Let's bow briefly and ask the Lord to help us as we transition to looking at God's Word. Father, we thank you for gathering us, and it is you who has gathered us, because you sit atop your world in control of all that happens within it, including all of our circumstances. And so we are able to be here because of you. Thank you for that grand privilege. Lord, we miss our brothers and sisters who are not able to be with us, some, many, watching via live stream who would love to be here. We would love to see them. We ask you to heal their ailments and bring them back to us soon. And Lord, as we transition from singing praise to you, we thank you for that privilege. We ask you to help us now as we open your word, in particular, to teach us to pray at the, seat, at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And help us to take with us that which we learn today into our lives this afternoon, this week, and beyond, to bring you glory in the way we depend on you, in coming to you, in prayer. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. In one of the resources that I've consulted for this series on prayer, the author said this, My reason for writing this book differs considerably from what one might expect. I was motivated largely by guilt. My prayer life simply is not what it should have been. I knew that as far as Scripture is concerned, prayer is a non-negotiable, and yet I had come to treat prayer like a raincoat, hanging in the closet, ready for use if the weather demanded, but hardly something to wear every day. Like my raincoat, prayer seemed unnecessary as long as the sun was shining. I'd fallen into the snare of complacency, thinking that since my life was relatively free from discomfort and tragedy, prayer could take a back seat. I am sure that describes many of you as it does me. But I'm grateful to the Lord that He has moved to correct that in your life and mine, in part, by means of this brief series. Our good God has taken this good step of prompting the need for prayer in our lives and congregation to accomplish His good ends, which I am excited to see played out in the next year and years as we obey and trust and glorify God in this important matter of prayer. We saw last week that Jesus taught us first how not to pray. We are not to approach God as if He is insignificant or impersonal or ignorant. We take such approaches because, as I noted last week, every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. So then Jesus taught us how to pray. We saw last week that we are to address God appropriately, our Father. And then when we begin making requests, we first talk to God about God. Or in the words of the outline that you should have received when you came in, we should talk to the Father about the Father. 
And that's followed by six petitions, six requests in Jesus' model prayer. The first three having to do with God, the last three with us, and that order is important. God first, then us, and that should always be our mindset. We saw the first two of those three requests to make about God last week, that His character be displayed. That's what hallowed be your name means, we saw, and that His kingdom be established, thy kingdom come. Now, all that we covered last week is in gray font, you see, on the outline that you have. The third of those three petitions about God that we address to Him is this. We should ask God that His desires be accomplished. Middle of verse 10, Jesus says we are to pray, in addition to hallowed be your name and your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, those four words raise a host of issues when applied to prayer that we need to take some time to address, starting with the fact that we're being told to ask God that His will be done when, in fact, we're taught throughout Scripture that in one sense, at least, God's will is always done. After all, the Bible says things like this, in Christ, we were chosen, having been predestined Notice, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. That includes big stuff like our eternal salvation that Ephesians 1 is dealing with, but also the smallest details of life in in God's Word, telling us about how God is interacting in His world. In the smallest details, Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care, that is, outside the will of your your father. And then notice this next piece, and even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So Jesus says, not even a relatively worthless bird falls to the ground outside the plan of God the Father. And if you want to make it more minute, not a hair falls from your head without God having willed it. And yet here we are praying, your will be done. In the first part of your Bible, through the prophet Isaiah, God said, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. From the east, I summon a bird of prey. From a far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, that I will bring about. What I have planned, that will I do. God's sovereign control over His universe even includes allowing things that are contrary to His character for His larger purpose in His world. He allows Satan to roam and tempt. But of course, those are not in keeping with God's character, but He uses those for His larger purpose. He allows nations to rage and plunder, and then He punishes those very nations for their arrogance in doing so. He did that with the nation of Babylon and through the prophet Habakkuk. He said, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to to seize dwellings, not their own. So I, God, am raising them up. Now, the manner in which God raises them up is, as we've seen in months past, as I teach in our systematic theology class that we call Master Plan for Life, that God leaves people to do what their hearts already want to do. And that's how he hardened Pharaoh's heart, you may remember. He gave Pharaoh enough rope to hang himself 
in effect. So God doesn't make people do evil, but He leaves people to do the evil they want. And that's what He's doing now with the Babylonians. And God says later with regard to the Babylonians, you Babylon will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. So the very means, the tool that God is using to accomplish His will, He is also going to hold accountable for their sin in doing so. And He allowed and He, he planned for Jesus to be crucified. And yet the Bible calls those who carried it out wicked because they were doing precisely what they wanted to do. Acts chapter 4, Peter explains, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So all of that is what theologians call God's sovereign will, and it is whatever comes to pass. It is sovereign because it's completely controlled by God. Unless you think that I make this, make this up, people much smarter than me, going back for over three centuries now, said in the Second London Baptist Confession of the year 1689 this, God has decreed in Himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of His own will freely and unchangeably all things which shall ever come to pass. So God's sovereign will, as we saw in the series that we did this past year, last year, on decision-making and the will of God, worry-free decision-making, we saw that God's sovereign will can be summarized this way. It's what God has chosen to allow. All things that God has decreed to take place in His world, God's sovereign will. But it is hidden, known only to God, unless revealed in Scripture for a predictive prophecy into the future. Otherwise, it's hidden. God knows what it is for today, the next hour, but it's known to Him. And it cannot be missed. You can't miss the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God is going to happen, and therefore it does not need to be pursued. Every event is within God's sovereign will. So we first need to understand that because the Bible teaches that. As we then read Jesus teaching us to pray, your will be done. So when Jesus says that, he cannot be talking about God's sovereign will, because that's going to be done no matter what. You cannot miss it, and you don't need to pursue it, and you don't need to pray for it. You can thank God for it. We're thankful, God, that you are sovereign, and you are on the throne, and you are in control of your world that otherwise looks chaotic. We know you have it in the palm of your hand. Certainly, we thank God for it, but we need not pray that it be done. I noted in that series last year, Worry-Free Decision-Making, that if we want to make our decisions in life, all of them in accordance with God's will, we need to understand that there are two aspects to His will. The first is God's sovereign will, or sometimes called His decreed will. It's whatever happens, the good, the bad, and the ugly. But then there is His moral will, 
what God wants, what God desires, what is in keeping with the character of God, who He is. One author put it this way, the moral will of God is the expression in behavioral terms of the character of God. And of course then the the moral will of God, unlike the sovereign will, is not always done because we live in a fallen, sinful world. You and I do not always obey the moral will of God. We sin. So the moral will of God is spoken of in terms like this in 1 Thessalonians 4. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that is, that is set apart, that you should progressively, if you belong to the Lord, be made holy, be made different because of your relationship with Him and the Holy Spirit that indwells you. That particular verse goes on to give us one way in which we do that. It goes on to say right after that, avoid sexual immorality. So unlike the culture around you, unlike those who don't know your father, you do not have a relationship with him through Jesus Christ, you're to be different, sanctified. That's God's will. It reflects his character. So we could talk about the moral will of God this way. It's what pleases God. And unlike the sovereign will of God, it's not secret, known only to God. Rather, it's been made known. It's been revealed. He tells us. And it can be missed and therefore should be pursued and should be prayed for. And unlike God's sovereign will, in which everything is within God's decreed will, God's moral will, a given event may or may not be within His moral will. It may or may not comport with God's character. And the key distinction between the two, God's sovereign will and His moral will, is revelation. That is, making known, exposing, telling us. God's sovereign will is made known, revealed after the fact, unless, as I said, it's a prediction in Scripture about the future. Other than that, we only know God's sovereign will after it happens, whatever happens. And so, speaking of God's sovereign will, it is proper to say, if you want to know God's sovereign will for today, ask me tomorrow. And it's whatever happens. But God's moral will is revealed, made known in Scripture. God's plan, His sovereign will, is known only to Him. God's desire, His moral will, has been given in Scripture. So the Bible says of these two aspects of the will of God, you find them coming together in one passage in the first part of your Bible, Deuteronomy 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. God has His plan. God has His ways known to Him and only to Him until they transpire. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. All right. Jesus says, pray this way, your will be done. You have the sovereign will of God. You have the, the moral will of God. And all of this raises questions as it relates to prayer. If God has already decreed and planned everything that comes to pass, then why should I ask for anything? It's going to happen whether I ask or not, right? Wrong. 
It is true that God already knows everything because He's planned everything. And so as we saw last week, Jesus taught that your Father knows what you need before you ask. And yet He teaches us to pray. God's sovereign will is going to happen for sure, but hear this. Our prayers are part of God's sovereign plan. God's sovereign will is going to be done for sure, but our prayers are part of accomplishing God's sovereign plan. God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass, and that includes ordaining to accomplish His plan through the prayers of His people. Our prayers are part of that plan. Our prayers are part of seeing that move move forward. Now why? Why would God choose the means of prayer to accomplish what He's planned to do? He certainly doesn't need information from us. We saw that last week. Do not pray, Jesus said, as if God is ignorant, as if you're informing Him about what's going on. Your Father knows what you need before you ask. So He doesn't need us to provide Him with information. He doesn't need our help in any way whatsoever. God is not a needy God. He Himself is not served by human hands in temples made by humans. Paul told the Athenian philosophers in Acts chapter 17, but rather He Himself gives all men and women life and breath and everything else. He doesn't need us to inform him. He doesn't need us to do anything. He could do it a different way if he so chose. In our Wednesday class on evangelism, I posed the same question about giving the gospel. Why does God, why does God include us in the giving of the gospel? He doesn't need us. God could, if you think about it, in theory, God could just decide, I'm just going to show up personally to every person that walks the face of the earth throughout history. I'll just show up personally, one-on-one. -on -one. Could God do that? He could. He's not chosen to do that. He has chosen within His sovereign will that it will be accomplished through the ordained means of people giving the gospel. And so I asked that question, well then, God doesn't need us to give the gospel, so why? And we noted that it brings glory to God. That's why God has ordained this means to accomplish His ordained ends. It brings glory to Him to do it this way. How so? When we evangelize, it means we have to live in a way that's consistent with the message that we're proclaiming. Be careful in the way you behave toward outsiders, we're told in Scripture, in an evangelistic context. That brings glory to God as we reflect His character back to Him as His emissaries in His world carrying His message to his world. And we obey him in giving the gospel without knowing the results. Don't know what's going to happen. Don't know if the person to whom I'm giving the gospel is going to receive Christ, but it brings glory to God when I trust him all along that he can give fruit for these labors when and how he sees fit. Likewise with prayer. God could get His sovereign will accomplished another way, but He's chosen to include us so that He's glorified in the process. 
So why do we ask lots of people to pray when we have a, a particular request? Perhaps you've had something in your life and you've gone out on social media and you've said, hey, everybody pray, pray for this particular thing. And that's a good thing for you to do. But if you say something like, and by the way, I haven't seen any of you say this. But if you say something like, we need to bombard heaven. So we need as many people as we can get so we can get God's attention. So we sometimes think of God as he's kind of up there in this control center and there's just stuff coming in, there's incoming, and God's keeping track of it and he's got the angels, you know, assisting him with this. And then finally, you know, some, somebody comes and reports to him, sir, it's, we're getting a bunch down from Trenton. <laughs> I think we need to give some attention here. He said, all right, we better. And you bombarded heaven. So why do we ask lots of people to pray about our request? Paul gave the answer to us. Here's what he said. God has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Now he says, I'm out here on the mission. You are my partners in this mission. Part of that partnership is partnership in prayer. Pray that God will continue to deliver us from the snares that we face. And then he says this, then many will give thanks for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. Why do we want many people praying? Because then it means God gets many praises when he does it. God doesn't need one person to pray. And if he did need one, he wouldn't need more than one. He doesn't need a hundred, he doesn't need a thousand. But the reason that he ordains prayer as part of accomplishing his plan, just like with evangelism, is because it reflects the character of God. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one who is omnipotent. He has all power. God is the one who is omniscient and knows all things and therefore what is best and what to answer and how. And when we get lots of people praying for whatever it is and God does it, he's glorified as he receives the many praises that he desires and deserves. So we pray because God gets the glory when we do so. As we show our dependence on Him, and He gets the praise for what He does, or even what He chooses, hear this, what He chooses not to do, as we will see. And God's glory is also seen in that we are told throughout Scripture, in a number of passages, we'll see one in a bit, we're told to ask in belief, ask in faith, if you approach Him believing then, the Bible says. So that word, approaching in faith, it's the same word in your New Testament, Greek, for belief. You could summarize it as trust. 
And the reason God requires that, the reason God requires that faith and, and believing that trust, the reason that he does that, have you guys getting the hint now that anytime you're asked, what's the reason that God does something? The answer always circles back the same way. It always gets back to the glory of God, the character of God. So whenever you hear me ask it, so why does God, if you'll just like utter the glory of God, everybody gets a star for the day. We, uh... And God wants us to trust, believe, have faith that he can do what we ask if it is within his moral and sovereign will. And believing he can, not demanding that he will, praises God. It brings glory to him. When I approach God, believing who he is and what he's able to do, even if he chooses not to do it. But you may be asking yourself, but aren't there places in Scripture where it says something like, if you ask, it will be done. And so that sounds like we are at command control, and the guys on TV are right. You name it and you claim it. Now, what most miss in those passages is that they are almost always qualified rather than presented as blank checks that we demand and God complies. So here's an example, 1 John chapter 5. If we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of Him. Whatever you ask, you get. Eh, wait a sec. So if the guy on TV quotes that verse, and he leaves it at that, he has, as is often the case, taken it out of what? The verse right before it says this, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. If we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of Him. Do you all note the qualifier? We ask according to His will. We ask according to His revealed will, His moral will. And God alone knows if it's part of His sovereign will. And then we have it. So it's not just anything you don't demand of God and then God dutifully responds. If you have another similar kind of passage in John chapter 16, written by this very same John. The Apostle John wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote the letter of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John, and the book of Revelation, five books in your New Testament. But he says in the Gospel of John, quotes Jesus saying, Very truly I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask. Now again, there's another one of these, whatever you ask. But if you just go a little bit further, Here's what it says. I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask, notice, in my name. Do you remember that Jesus taught us to pray last week, hallowed be your name? It is not simply the letters G-O-D, as we saw. It is not simply the five letters G-E-S-U-S. It is not an incantation in the name of Jesus, I command. You guys have seen that on TV, haven't you? 
But the name is the, the character, things that are in accordance with his character, his moral will. But there is a passage that does not, at least at first glance, have the qualifiers, and it's in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to see it in a moment. And that is no surprise in the Gospel of Mark, because if you have read through the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are in a category called the Gospels because they all deal with the life of Jesus on earth. That's why if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, most of the red letters, almost all of them, are in those four books, because that's when Jesus was here on earth and talking. They're all about that. They cover sometimes the very same events. One might give some details, the other does not give. But Mark, in particular, does so in quick succession and doesn't leave a lot of detail. And here's, here's what Jesus says as recorded by Mark. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. So, for myself, I'm a million dollars richer this week, having named it and claimed it. You guys think that's true? <laughs> Not really. So what is that and how can we put that in its larger context to see whether or not Jesus is indeed putting us in command control. One author has helpfully explained the limitations on it this way. When Jesus says, whatever you ask, does he mean we can ask absolutely anything? Are there no restrictions? The answers to prayer not depend at all on what we ask for? And when Jesus says that we must not doubt but believe that what we say will come to pass, does he mean that in order to have our prayers answered, we must have undoubting faith that God will give us the very thing we ask? In other words, in what sense do prayer, answers to prayer depend on faith? Let's start with the word whatever in verse 24. It sounds absolute and all-inclusive, but there are reasons that we should not think Jesus intended to give a blank check even in Mark. The first has to do with the nature of language. Another has to do with the immediate context. The nature of language is such that all words get their meaning from the way they're used. Therefore, the usual meaning of a word is determined by its usual usage in our culture. And the particular meaning of a word in a particular text is determined by its particular usage by a particular author. So, if I'm a teacher and I come into class and I ask, is everybody here? And then if someone said yes, I could say something irritating, then like, well, where's Joe Biden? You see, it wouldn't take long to illustrate that the word everybody may or may not have an absolute all-inclusive meaning depending on the way it's used in a particular context, right? And that's the way it is with the term whatever in Mark chapter 11. It may or may not be absolute and all-inclusive. If you were invited to, out to eat and you sat down at the table and you said, I'll eat whatever you have, no one would offer you a pencil or a straw basket or a shoe. They would know that whatever meant whatever you're serving for dinner. So the meaning of whatever in Mark chapter 11 can't be settled simply by looking at the word. We have to look at the context to see if Jesus puts any limits on that. Then we stop to think about whatever is all-inclusive. 
in the larger context of, of Scripture, it teaches that there are things we, we won't get even if we ask for them. I mean, you all remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that Paul said, three times I begged of the Lord, I pleaded with the Lord to take this apparently physical malady from me, and the Lord refused. So if the Apostle Paul can't do command and control, you probably can't either. But here's what James says. You do not have because you do not ask. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. If James is right, then the whatever has to be qualified in Mark 11. You won't get whatever you ask for, no matter how much you believe you will. If what you're asking for is simply for your own private satisfaction. Prayer should always be acts of love, and so they should always aim not merely at our own satisfaction, but also at the benefit of others. We already saw in 1 John chapter 5 that prayer must be according to God's will. And does the immediate context of Mark chapter 11 demand a limitation on whatever in a similar way to 1 John 5, 14? The next verse, Mark 11, not verse 24, but now verse 25 says this, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your trespasses. This verse demands that the promise then of verse 24 be limited. It shows that when Jesus said, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you received it, it'll be yours. He did not mean you could pray for vengeance, right? To come on all your enemies. So what this means is that there's no contradiction between Jesus on the one hand and James and John on the other. All agree that God does not promise that absolutely everything we ask for will be given us if we just believe that it will. But what we must believe is that God can. If it's within His will. So to review, we pray Believing, that is in faith, same word, that God hears us and He can and will answer, and He will answer. It may be no. The reason faith and belief is so important to God is that when we believe, we're acknowledging God for who He is and what He can do. And God desires and deserves to be approached that way as the omnipotent God who can do anything. The answer may be no. If we fail to pray, He will overrule in His sovereignty. But we pray because we want there to be nothing that we choose that He has to overrule, including a lack of prayer. So God's universe doesn't depend on you or me. But God has chosen the means of prayer to accomplish His ends. A sovereign God knows whether you will obey or I will obey or not. If we choose not to obey, God's sovereignty will overrule. But our desire, as His children should be, to indeed pray so that He does not need to, in His sovereignty, overrule our sin of a lack of praying. 
And we've seen that prayer must be in accord with God's revealed will, and He will answer according to what is best in His sovereign will. If the answer is no, then it's not best in His sovereign will for some reason unknown to us. Remember, God's sovereign will is known to Him. And then lastly, dependence and praise are given to God when we pray. Dependence, because we don't know whether it's in God's sovereign will or not. We pray in His moral will, and then we depend on God to do what is best. And He receives praise when we pray, as we have seen. He receives the glory when we say, nevertheless, not my will but thine. But we should pray specifically, as Jesus teaches us in the fourth petition, in this sixth petition prayer, that we will see next week. He says, give us this day our daily bread. And so we talk to the Father about the Father, and then we talk to the Father about the family. And we ask, Jesus says, ask first of all for your daily needs. We'll see that next week, but we should pray, friends, we should pray specifically for what we need. Because then we get to see how God accomplished it. Because in having prayed that way, we're now looking for it. And when he does it, what's the automatic response? He gets the glory. He gets the praise. And so Kim and I, for years, have marveled at how we will begin a week. We always compare our schedules. And sometimes the schedule just looks overwhelming. And one or the other of us or both says, I don't think I can do. We pray about it, and the Lord opens up the schedule in some way. And because you prayed about it, you praise God for it. Hear this, God hears and He answers every prayer of His people. Noah's an answer. All prayers are heard and answered. So you should pray specifically about whatever it is, including praying specifically for that person in your life that you want to see come to Jesus. It may appear to be a no right now. It may still be a no after you're gone. And Jesus may take what you have done and bring that person to the Lord later, and you see them in heaven. God often, often honors the prayers of His people, prayers that He Himself has prompted for the salvation of others. There is great hope for the person who is outside of Jesus if they have the great privilege of somehow being connected to someone who needs Him and who deigns to pray. So here's what I'd like to do right now. I'd like for our congregation together to pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer, in particular to pray for people that God has brought in our spheres of influence, family members, co-workers, neighbors. And I urge you to think about a person, 
that God would save that person, bring that person to himself. Perhaps write down the person you're thinking of. And then we'll have a great praise service when we baptize that person here in the future. Let's bow together then. Our Father, we thank you that we can approach you as our Father. We are in your family only because of your grace extended to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for adopting us into your family, for doing all that is necessary for us to have right standing before you so that we can indeed be your children. Lord, we thank you for the many amazing privileges that you afford us because we are in your family. You bid us to, to come to you and to bring our petitions. Lord, we desire to see your rule extended in your world, and we look forward to the time in the future when it will be extended to every corner of your earth. Your kingdom come. We desire, Lord, to see your character displayed throughout your world. Hallowed be your name. And Lord, we desire that your will be done in our lives, first and foremost, and then in the lives of those around us and those in Trenton and Michigan and in our country, extended to around your world. But Lord, we know that only happens as people come to you in faith, understanding who they are before you and that you alone can rescue, deliver, save them and change them from the inside out as you've graciously done with us. So, Lord, we acknowledge that we are no better. We are simply better off because we have come to you in your grace and mercy. And, Lord, each of us has a person or people in our lives that we love dearly, that we want to see come to know you, that we want to see acknowledge you with their mouths, that you are Lord. Receive the gift that you alone can provide for forgiveness of sin, past, present, and future. That you alone can provide the robe of righteousness achieved by the perfect life of the Lord Jesus when that person bows their heart and their head before you and receives you as Savior and Lord. And so we ask you to do this throughout this room there are names on hearts, and you know every one of them. We would ask you in this sacred moment to move upon the heart of some in this room, to draw them out of the world into yourself, calling them in love, Because God has come to do for them what they could not do for themselves. Live the life that we were made to live and die the death that we deserve. Lord, as a result of this, we will have celebration. We believe, we know that you can. We know that you desire to honor the praises of your people, not because you need to be informed about who needs to be saved but because you deserve to be glorified when you do it. And so we will be careful to give you the praise for what you accomplish in saving those who you have placed upon the hearts of your people. 
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have some folks who have come to join our church. I'm going to introduce them. And then we'll be dismissed with a closing song. So if you guys will come on up. So this is Justin and Whitney Neal, and they have two little ones, Blake and Joanna. All right, star for me. Been coming for at least a year, I think, taking our newcomers orientation, taking a good look at our church, and we're thrilled when we got their membership applications. They've decided that this is where the Lord would have them to grow and serve. And so I've met with them, heard their testimony of salvation. They've signed our membership covenant. And so we're recommending uh, uh, Justin and Whitney into membership into our church. We'll just vote on them as a couple. If any of you have a no vote on one of them, we'll find out which it is later. <laughs> All in favor of receiving Justin and Whitney into membership of our church signify by saying amen. 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 Any opposed? No. Thank you, guys. And this is uh, Chad and Patty Fife. Fife, F-I-F-E. We have the Fite, F-I-T-E family in our church, but these are the Fifes. And they are the parents of Erica Donovan. And uh, James and Erica uh, have been members of our church since uh, this past uh, late spring or early summer. You guys have been coming for a number of months and uh, checking us out prayerfully considering and decided to this is the place that the Lord would have them. Likewise, heard their testimony of salvation. They've signed our, our membership covenant, so we're recommending them into the membership of our, our church. All in favor, signify by saying amen. 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 Any opposed? All right. Thank you guys very much and welcome. And during our refreshment time, you should seek those four out and welcome them into the fellowship of our church. Now, I'm here with no musicians. <laughs> Usually there are musicians, but I was told just before the service started that uh, we wouldn't have musicians. Uh, Anthony had a family issue he needed to attend to, not, not a dangerous thing or anything like that, but he needed to attend to something. So I said, okay, I'll do something. <laughs> so we're taking favorites. What do you guys want to... <laughs> do we... Do we have a verse of, all right, so I said, all right, put that up there. Do some of you know that? All right, we're going to try to sing one verse of that. Let's stand together. All right, y'all ready? Sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour.